This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.26. All of this has happened before. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom. I'm a lifelong Gundam fan. And like cats, in my teenage years, I too made some bad mistakes while trying to impress a girl. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and I'm impressed with Camille while simultaneously mourning his lost childhood. So you have seen Gundam before. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 261 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Spencer L., Brian S., Tammy Whammy, Kurt F., Nathan R., Taryn S., and Connor M. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. We also recently set up a Ko-fi page for anyone who would like to support the podcast with a one-time payment rather than an ongoing subscription. You can check it out at ko-fi.com slash GundamPodcast. The holiday season is upon us. And another way to support the podcast is to buy us a gift from our wish list. As you might imagine, there are a lot of reference books, magazines, and other research materials that we wish we had access to. Not to mention recording equipment, office supplies, and tea to keep our voices in tip-top shape. Tip-top shape. The link to the wish list is at the bottom of our homepage, GundamPodcast.com. And now, back to Gundam. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 25, Colony Drop. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers Women in the Workplace, Nuclear Pulse Engines, Sitting in Seiza, and Fortune Telling Machines. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last week. I took the lead. So sieht es auch der Sozialverband. You are ridiculous. Breaking news from Dakar. Federation high official and alleged AUG mastermind Commodore Blex Forer is dead today at the age of 35. He was found dead in his room at the Hotel Dakar Prince where he was staying while attending the ongoing Federation General Assembly in Dakar, after other guests reported the sound of shots being fired. After a thorough six-hour investigation, the Federation Medical Examiner's Office has concluded that Forer died during a murder-suicide in which he shot his guards and then himself. While we here at TNN can only speculate as to the reasons for Commodore Forer's actions, we can assume that it was at least partly motivated by fear that he would be discovered and punished for his many alleged crimes. The medical examiner's report is expected to put an end to baseless speculation and conspiracy theories already circulating in some anti-Earth circles 
that claim the esteemed spacenoid rights activist and alleged terrorist was in fact murdered in order to prevent him from presenting an emergency motion before the assembly, which would have called for the transfer of the Federation capital into space. The medical examiner's report is unbiased and comprehensive, and while it will not be released to the public due to privacy concerns, it has been reviewed and approved by the Independent Office of the Inspector General for the Federation. In other news, following the approval of the Hyman Act, all Federation forces have been placed under the direct supervision of the Titans. This includes, of course, the Federation's Earth, Sea, and Space forces, as well as certain executive agencies, such as the offices of the medical examiner and the inspector general for the Federation. With characteristic Titans' efficiency, key positions have already been occupied by Titans' officers, and no interruptions are anticipated. With this, a quick victory against the Spacenoids is guaranteed. Quattro's Log, August 17th, UC87. Dear Diary, it happened again. Now the recap for Colony Drop. A Hyzak carrying a massive white flag approaches the Argama. It is Sarah, Sirocco's young new type candidate, who claims she defected when she learned of the Titans' latest plan. An empty colony from Side 4 is being moved, and the Titans plan to drop it on Granada. The Argama's officers gather to discuss this new intelligence. Sarah is so young it's hard to believe that she could be a spy, and she truly seems fed up with the Titans. But it could all so easily be a trap, or a feint, to distract them while something more significant happens elsewhere. Rekoa puts Camille on the spot. Does he believe Sarah? He does, and they decide to proceed under the assumption that the Titans are planning a colony drop. A guard takes Sarah to a cell, reassuring her that it's just a precaution. Once she proves herself, she'll be a member of Ayug in no time. Entranced, Katz follows them, and Camille catches him staring. Both Camille and the guard warn Katz away, before Camille goes in to question her. She plays to his emotions, but Camille has gotten crafty and tricks her into admitting that Sirocco sent her to them. He still believes the Titans plan a colony drop, but can't understand how telling Ayug about it benefits Sirocco. Sarah finally clams up and Camille leaves, trailing Katz, who had waited in the hall. That girl is dangerous, Camille warns, leaving Katz more interested than before. On the Alexandria, Jamaican is pleased with his simple plan to stop Ayug in its tracks. Although he blames Sirocco for the loss of Von Braun, he knows he cannot return to grips without a victory. He promises his crew an entire week of paid vacation if they can successfully complete the mission. The battle begins. Mobile suit pilots on both sides rush to sortie. The Titans defend the empty colony, while Ayug tries to get Emma through so that she can set off a nuclear pulse that will shift the colony's course away from Granada. On the captain's orders, Katz takes Sarah a normal suit, Despite repeated warnings from Camille, he stays to talk to her. She asks why he isn't in battle. He's a pilot, isn't he? When he tells her that they don't have enough mobile suits, she suggests he take her Hyzak. He's a new type, after all, and she'd love to see him fight. She can teach him how to use the Hyzak in no time. He finally agrees to take her to the hangar. Once they reach the Hyzak and open the cockpit, Sarah punches Katz away and takes the mobile suit for herself. Furious and hurt, Katz shoots his handgun at the Hyzak as she flies away. Out in space, the dogfighting between mobile suits continues. 
Emma stays focused on her target, ripping the head off of one Hyzak that gets in her way, tackling another, and slicing up a third. She is finally able to set off the nuclear pulse, changing the course of the massive colony. It is too late for the Titans to change it back, and Jamaican is forced to accept that the mission was a failure. As punishment for helping Sarah escape, Katz is left kneeling in a cell, wondering to himself, are humans this hard to trust? We are officially at the halfway mark now. Yes, this was episode 25 out of 50. Colony drop, which in Japanese is koroni ga ochiruhi, which actually means something more like the day the colony falls. I like that better. Why didn't they go with that? I don't know. <laughs> I wonder if it's a the day the earth stood still reference. It could be. So the episode opens with a Hyzak carrying a giant white flag flying through space and then landing on the Argama. Actually, the episode opens with the view of Earth from the moon. Even before we get the Hyzak, there's a lot of focus on, oh, look, the Earth's right there. Mm. We're here on the moon and there's the Earth. And it really does feel like they are hammering home that the Earth is vulnerable from the moon. Mm -hmm. So that actually gives me an opportunity to talk about one of the little tidbits that I wanted to mention here which is that the colony used in this colony drop operation is taken from side four. Now, if you remember all the way back in season one, when I talked about the sides, I mentioned at one point, I think, that which sides are assigned to which Lagrange points changes at some point in the history of the making of Gundam. <laughs> and Zeta is when it changes. So back in first Gundam in 1979, side four was located at L5, a position it shared with side one, and that's one of the Trojans. Those are the Lagrange points that are in the path of the moon. And so as the moon rotates, they also rotate and one is always ahead of the moon and one is always behind the moon. That was the case in 1979, but now side four is located at L1 which is the Lagrange point between the Earth and the Moon. So when we see that shot of the Earth from the Moon, although we can't see it, we are looking at the colony heading towards the Moon. Oh, very interesting. But after that, we do get that shot of the Hyzak with the white flag. Mm -hmm. And that has to make us think immediately of Emma's defection back in episode four. Well, Emma's arrival first in episode three and then her defection in episode four. I hope you're ready, because once we start talking about Sarah in this episode, it's just going to go. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Let's go. They don't know what to trust and what not to trust. Camille is sure she's not telling them everything, even though he believes her about the colony drop. Bright is sure that she's a spy. Rekoa doesn't trust her at all. Katz trusts her completely. <laughs> um, but it made me think of a line <laughs> from the movie and book The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, and one character is talking about another, and she says, in everything she says, there is something true and something untrue. Mm. And I think the times when Sarah is believable, it's because she's being honest. She is sick of the Titans. She doesn't want them to drop a colony on the moon. Those tears when she talks about all the innocent people of Granada are real. She does like cats. She legit has a crush on cats. She also manipulates him to her advantage. 
I think we need a new word for the combination of flirting and manipulation. Flirnipulation. <laughs> Sounds like something medical. <laughs> and that's why Camille's insight into her feels so impressive, I think. Because he's able to look past her honesty and ask, okay, but why? Yeah, that scene where he's talking to her and he teases out. He says, oh, did he tell you that saying that would get people on your side? And she makes the classic mistake of being like, no, Soroka didn't. Giving the whole game away. And later when she doesn't respond, but he says, how does stopping this help Soroko? Like he knows there must be more to what's going on than what she's told them. For all that Camille got chewed out for that interrogation later by Fa, he was really impressive in that scene. He was. I also loved seeing Sarah try to flirnipulate Camille, trying to turn on the charm, and Camille reacting to it just like, what? It was like watching a kitten trying to kill a boulder. Camille has learned to be cautious and suspicious. Especially of cyber new types, you know, for some reason. I didn't get the sense that she was flirting with Camille, to be honest. I did think she was trying to tug at his heartstrings. I thought, you know, her whole, I thought a pilot like you would understand me. Uh, but not like later when she's talking to Cass and, oh, but you're the one who's helping me. Oh, I really want to see you in battle. You're a pilot, aren't you? Like, and hugging him and everything. I didn't get that sense. I think she's aware from the moment... Katz gets caught staring at her through the open door, like, oh, this kid, <laughs> I've got my hooks in him. Yeah. Well, that's what makes the bit with Camille so funny. I stand by my read on her trying to flirt and manipulate with him, mm. even if it's mostly in the body language. And because he doesn't react, she doesn't sell it as much. That being said. We must agree to disagree on this point. But I love seeing the contrast of her playing cats like a fiddle versus just bouncing right off of Camille. I hate to be that person, but I have to bring up something that bothered me intensely. <laughs> uh, so Fa takes Camille to task for locking himself in a room alone with Sarah to interrogate her. It looks bad. And he admits that it looks bad once she you know, she tells him, like, that's not your job. And it's weird that you did that. And the look of the thing. And I think he's sincere when he apologizes. We know... From early in Zeta, they have cameras in all these rooms. He could have had somebody watching the interrogation <laughs> this whole time. Maybe somebody was. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I just think the show forgot or it didn't suit their purposes in the same way that it did in that episode of Emma to have like three layers of people watching mm -hmm. this conversation. Uh, but I'm like, come on, guys, there's an easy solution <laughs> to this problem. <laughs> Except that Caesar gives Camille the key to Sarah's room. They clearly trust him with it. I mean, Fa may well be the only person who has a problem with him going in there. And I don't think Fa is being completely in good faith. I think Fa is jealous, as evidenced by her. Did something happen between <laughs> the two of you? Well, she's, she's being honest in that, yes, it would look bad to people. But there's also that element of dishonesty because she's not admitting to the fact that the people it looks bad to are her. You know, in that scene where Fa is taking Camille to task, this is right after they've all had lunch, Katz has rejected Camille's well-intentioned attempt to big brother him about not getting involved with enemy pilots. It's a really interesting scene visually because it takes place in the Argama cafeteria, a space we haven't actually seen before. 
It's full of people, mostly characters we've never met, and a lot of women, a lot more women than we've seen on the ship basically the whole rest of the time. I noticed this in particular because there's a lot of couples, um, but also because one of the women who walks by in the background looks exactly like a Leiji Matsumoto character, who has a very distinctive style of like very tall, very skinny, very pointy women with big hair. <laughs> there's a lot of unrequited loving going on in this episode, or requited but with hurdles. All right, I'm going to want you to explain that in a moment. But the thing I noticed about the cafeteria, the trees, the cafeteria is full of plants. I also saw, I think, some bamboo. Some like vines wrapped around the columns. I thought it was part of making it a more pleasant place to live. Mm. And probably also having live plants on a ship would help keep it livable, right? Like produce oxygen. And... Absolutely. You were talking about pairings and romantic attachments in this episode requited unrequited and with complication yeah so what are you talking about okay beckner's feelings for emma unrequited yes camille and fa complications mm -hmm. sarah and cats complications mm -hmm. the one question mark then because think about the scene construction. We go from this overt conversation between Beckner and Emma, where he's like, oh, I'm worried that if you get too close to the nuclear pulse engine, you won't be able to have kids. And she's like, I do not have any plans to get married. And then she goes into the cafeteria. She does the little fortune telling machine that tells her she's going to be proposed to in the near future. And she explicitly says, oh, God, that was awkward. Yeah. And her response to the marriage fortune is, yada, which is like, Oh, no. <laughs> Regrettable. <laughs> then we see Rekua picking up lunch for Bright. We shift over to Camille and Katz and Fa, and Camille and Fa have their lovers spat. So the whole cafeteria scene is all about these different romantic pairings. Emma Beckner, Camille Fa, and although half of this one isn't present, Katz and Sarah. So why is Rekua there? In a way, in that scene, Rekua feels like a stand-in for the audience, because when we see her picking up lunch, we can see... Katz, Fa, and Camille in the background. And when she goes to take Bright his lunch and coffee and so on, they're talking about Camille and Sarah. They're talking about the situation. And so she and Bright are the observers and providing this extra commentary on the situation from outside it. Mm. Yeah. Bright reveals that he is sure Sarah is a spy. And when Rekoa is like, oh, even though she's so young, and he's like, she's a new type, it doesn't really matter how old she is. Bright knows from experience. Camille, on the other hand, is still too young. Still too impulsive, too angry. What I found fascinating is that when Bright says Camille is still too angry, he says, like me. Bright never seems like that angry a person to me, but perhaps we're meant to understand that that's because he's keeping it all in check all the time. He's very in control because he has to be because he's in charge and he has been since he was 19. He has been ever since Captain Paolo died. We see Bright being very frustrated by things. Of course we do. It's a very frustrating situation he's in. And to some degree, kind of throwing up his hands at situations that he doesn't feel like he can solve. If it's an explicitly military situation, if it's a battle situation, he'll do whatever needs to be done. He'll come up with something. But if it's more social, if it has to do with how to be a mentor to Camille, he just kind of like shrugs. It goes, I don't know. I guess I'm just bad at this. I <laughs> All I can do is throw him in the brig. 
Maybe we're meant to see in that frustration the anger that he's talking about here. Was there anything else about that scene that you found odd? When Bright says Camille's not a new type yet, even though we've had repeated demonstrations of Camille's psychic powers, his ability to sense people at distance, his ability to sense when people are in danger, to feel when people are coming towards him, and his intuition about Sarah that is correct. And it becomes increasingly clear to everybody on the Argama that Camille's intuition was correct as the episode proceeds. But to Bright, that doesn't make Camille a new type. Merely being a psychic, an esper, doesn't make Camille a new type. It's something else. And it may be something else that Sarah, despite her youth and relative inexperience, does already possess. I think for Bright, the goalposts are certainly in a different place than they are for many other people. You know, he's known personally some of the most powerful new types ever. And I I do think this reminds me of martial arts. For people who don't understand, the definition is all mechanical. Can you do X? Can you do Y? And the more understanding you have and the more ability you have, the less it becomes about that and the more it's about this like deep philosophical connection to the universe that actually has nothing to do with the manifestations that we see. Mm -hmm. I also wonder if for Bright... The definition of what makes a new type is different when it's an enemy versus when it's a friend. Like, Probably. <laughs> Sarah is new type enough to be a threat. Camille is not yet new type enough to survive. And not for nothing, when Sarah is manipulating cats, one of the things she says to him, which she knows will be taken as a flattery, as a compliment, is, you're a new type, aren't you? He wants nothing more than to be like acknowledged as valuable in that way. Well, that's everything about her flattery of him, right? Like, Prove to me how big and important you are by taking me out of my cell. You're a pilot, aren't you? Shouldn't you have sortied? Why are you here instead? Oh my God, Sarah's negging him. (laughs) Cats, no, those are just tricks that Sirocco taught her. And that's kind of a joke, but it's also literally true, at least as implied by this episode. When Camille is interrogating Sarah, he suggests, and it sounds like it's true, that Sirocco, like gave her instructions on how to manipulate the crew of the Argama. Presumably, if you find a teenage boy, seduce him was on that list. Sirocco's presence, even though he's not ever shown in this episode, looms large both in the effect that he has had on Jamaican, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon, and through Sarah. And Sarah's role here really reveals Sirocco's genius, because even though they know that Sarah is just here to tell them about the colony drop as a distraction and because preventing it will be good for Sirocco in some way, nonetheless, even though they know that, they can't afford to ignore it. Right. They still have to treat it seriously. Which brings us to cats. Oh, cats. Caesar even tells him, no, cats. It does feel as if Katz's purpose in this episode is really to be a foil to Camille and how far Camille has come and the progress Camille has made in sort of being calmer and more deliberate and more cautious, you know, less impulsive, less angry, less outwardly angry anyway. Less desperate to prove himself. Whereas here we have Katz being all of those things. He's so desperate to prove himself and and feels so slighted by his treatment, even though he is the new guy and very young. One line in particular stuck out to me. When Camille tries to warn him 
And he pulls the, you're not my supervisor. <laughs> Camille says, gee, I wonder what, you know, Mr. Amaro would think about your attitude, <laughs> basically. And Katz's retort is, it doesn't matter. We're not on Earth. So he's gone from a certain amount of hero worship for Amaro to basically being like, rules are different in space, which feels like a very... uh quattro bagina kind of attitude to take and i wonder if that is something that he heard expressed from quattro at some point or another or if that was just quattro's whole vibe for the whole time they were together <laughs> and in a way Katz is really rejecting everything that's been important to him so far all his family is still on earth his father is still on earth his father would not have been pleased by Katz's behavior today no he would not have when Hayato was like, Katz, the selfish actions of one person can put an entire unit at risk. What did Katz think he was talking about? Not him, obviously. <laughs> Just in general. Important lessons <laughs> for other people to listen to. When Sarah is convincing him to let her out of her cell, he's like sweating. While she, after she hugs him, we get a close up on his face. <laughs> he's, got the, he's got the sweat beads on the side of the face. Do you not remember what it was like to be 15 and in the physical presence of a very attractive person who was flirting with you? I mean, I remember sweating was not how the nervousness showed itself for me, but... How lucky for you. <laughs> Nina, he's a 15-year-old boy. He has 60% sweat and 40% odors. Then when Sarah leaves... Katz is so angry and also so hurt that while he's effectively cursing her, that girl, uh, he's crying. His eyes are full of tears. Crying and cursing and shooting at her. Right. With his gun from Amaro shooting at a mobile suit, because that makes sense. He's just shooting his feelings at her with approximately the same result. And then when he's in the brig, he seems very calm. He seems to have accepted that he did something very bad and that the punishment he's receiving is appropriate to what he's done. And isn't it interesting that Camille is the one who is giving him his punishment? Although Rekoa is the one who tells him, stay kneeling there. Like, that's not just a position while we shut the door and lock you up and then you can do whatever you want. Like, a part of the punishment is that he's supposed to stay kneeling for some period of time. And he thinks to himself... Once he's alone in the cell, are humans that hard to trust? Which, for all that we feel like he's kind of dumb for not having learned this already, like it is a lesson. Children are frequently very trusting. We learn caution. We learn distrust and keeping people at a distance. Katz and Sarah are the emotional core of this episode, but there is a lot going on around them as well. And we do get some insight into the politics, both of the Titans and of Ayug. Wong Lee makes uh, another appearance in the show. He still has something very particularly against Camille. Even though Camille has done everything that's been asked of him, Camille has absolutely become the sort of model member of Ayug. Someone on whom Bright feels relatively comfortable relying. Nonetheless, Wong Lee still has to... Take a dig at him. Yeah. He accuses Camille of giving unsolicited opinions. When Rekoa has just asked Camille what he thinks. Yeah, it feels supremely petty for someone in such a position of power to be so hung up on this like average 
maybe not average, but like a low level soldier. <laughs> but we also learn that for reasons of experience and also reasons of necessity, Wang has a lot of trust and confidence in Ayug and in the Argama crew specifically. You know, he mentions that he talked to someone, uh, someone we've never heard of before, Melanie Hugh Carbine, who says he can really put his trust in Ayug. Uh, he makes the point to the mayor of Granada that there's no point in evacuating the city. Because if Ayug fails, it won't matter if they're in an underground bunker. They're all dead anyway. And that to have an evacuation, even though they have Ayug forces in place ready to stop the colony drop, uh, might cause a decrease in public confidence. Like, they need the populace. <laughs> they need people to trust in the strength of their forces or they're not going to be able to pull this off in the long run. Hmm. I had a slightly different interpretation of that bit where Wong says, if Ayuk fails, we're dead anyway. I think he says, if Ayuk fails, then the earth will be destroyed and that's it for the Titans and Ayuk and all of us. And so my thought in that scene was he was saying, even if you evacuate into the underground tunnels, and even if you survive the colony drop, if Ayuk fails, the earth will be destroyed and then we'll all die eventually. I wonder if he's thinking of like the Cold War worst case scenario, right? Pretend the colony is a nuclear bomb. If one bomb gets set off, suddenly everyone is going to start bombing each other and nothing will be left but ashes. Like, is he imagining this event as something that will precipitate like war on such a scale that everyone and everything will be annihilated? Yeah, I think so. Or at least the earth will be annihilated and the colonies are maybe not yet entirely self-sufficient or maybe they are. But I mean, imagine the population of one city on the moon hidden in tunnels deep inside the moon being the only survivors. It's effectively the end of the human species. Over on the Titans side, Jamaican does not view the colony drop as being all that serious of an operation. He views it as a quick trick to get rid of Ayug. God, he seems more and more oblivious and incompetent the more we get of him. <laughs> yeah. He blames the whole Von Braun situation on Sirocco. He's not entirely wrong in that, like, Sirocco did sort of like a duck in and out however he liked, and Sirocco didn't care about hanging on to Von Braun. But Von Braun may not have been, like, keepable. There may not have been a way to retain control there without, like, a massive military presence. Especially once we learned just how unpopular the Titans were with the people of Von Braun. Right. And so to be like, oh, we had to run away and it's all Sirocco's fault is clearly like a self-justification and a, a way to try to make himself feel better or to scapegoat Sirocco. It reminds me of all of the first Gundam Xeon officers who are like blaming Shar for their own failures. And then in this episode, he says, we can't go back to grips until we've reclaimed our honor. Right. That they need a, a solid victory before returning to grips. Jamaican may know that he is skating on thin ice at this point. His failures are mounting, and he needs a win before he shows his face around Basque again. And we have him and Yazan, and Yazan is the lieutenant in charge of all the mobile suit pilots. I don't remember his exact rank. I think he's a squad leader. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, 
It does feel like they both blame each other by the end of the episode for the lack of success here. The Jamaican's attitude is, why didn't Yazan prevent this Ayug pilot from adjusting the course of the colony? And Yazan's attitude is that Jamaican is deploying them willy-nilly without really having successful strategies or plans in place. Yazan just wants to go out there and fight. Yazan wants to destroy Ayuk mobile suits. He wants frontal attacks. Well, and not for nothing, Yazan could probably have done a better job on the preventing anyone from getting to the colony part of the mission. Oh, he almost certainly could have. Yazan keeps hunting out particular mobile suits and getting into duels rather than fighting on the battlefield and trying to achieve his objectives. Yeah, Camille mentions, oh, it's like a dogfight. Especially once they know that he has a blind spot, because dogfighting is entirely about trying to get into the blind spot of the other ship and firing on them. So that little consolation hint that Sarah gave Katz right before she broke his heart turned out to be pretty useful after all. And we get still further information about the Titans because Katz is surprised that it would have this blind spot. And I believe Sarah says it's because it was developed so quickly they failed to resolve all of the problems with it. Uh, so they are trying to churn out new mobile suits as quickly as possible without necessarily making them the best possible mobile suit for the job. Although, again, we see some parallels between Ayug and the Titans. When Emma's going out in the Mark II, the G-Defensor upgrade components are not ready for her. Yeah, she's, she looks very angry and... Uh, when Beckner radios her before she launches, he apologizes and tells her not to die out there because everyone would be very sad. <laughs> she does kind of a weird thing when he says that, doesn't she? She like she makes looks... a weird facial expression and is sort of like looking around her cockpit. She looks away, not just eyes looking off to the side, but actually turning her head like 90 degrees. You know what it made me think of? When, and I feel like you see this in shows a lot, but when somebody's trying to feed a baby or a toddler something they don't want to eat, and they sort of like purse their mouth shut and turn their face away, <laughs> that's what it made me think of. Yeah, I don't know what that was about if she just like didn't want to acknowledge him, because she doesn't. She sort of looks away for a little while, and then she's like, okay, Emma, launching. <laughs> <laughs> she just doesn't want to deal with this. Please just let her go back to the Argama. One note about Emma from this episode. I've mentioned before that Emma doesn't seem like all that great a mobile suit pilot. She kicks some serious butt in this episode. She tears a Hyzak's head off. And then chops another one up and keeps like tackling them when they get in her way. And she never loses sight of the mission. Correct. She never gets drawn off into a duel or a dogfight. Yeah, she is the one who sets off the nuclear pulse that changes the trajectory of the colony so that it will strike outside of Granada at a safe distance. Yeah, I was impressed. I was like, okay, apparently Emma's good now. <laughs> yeah, when Beckoner mentions to Emma, like, oh, I'm worried about the radiation exposure for you. Like, what if it made it so you couldn't have children? And her response is, oh, I'm, I'm not even thinking of marrying. Uh, that feels very much like a commentary on women in the workplace. Mm. <laughs> Uh, like, here is this somewhat older man worrying about like, oh, but what about this whole other part of your life that I just assume that you want and will want to have? And this young military officer was like, oh, no, I, I had never even thought about that for myself. 
That's not a thing I'm planning on. But aren't you just piloting mobile suits so you can find yourself a man? But this is just like a temporary thing, right? You're just going to do this until you have babies. Yeah, settle down, have some kids, be a terrible mother, traumatize them so that they become mobile suit pilots. You know, mom stuff. And now it's time for our research section. First, we have women in the workplace, then nuclear pulse engines, sitting in Seiza, and finally, fortune-telling machines. Before I begin, I just need to express what a weird day it's been. Since I woke up this morning, I have seen two articles on Twitter that directly relate to my research pieces. Why is an anime from 1985 so topical in 2019? Yeah. I wish it were for different reasons. We tend to laugh about Beckner's obvious feelings for Emma, but their interactions, especially in this episode, give us a chance to talk about trends in women in the workforce, marriage, and childbearing in Japan of the 1980s. Emma doesn't seem intimidated or afraid by the situation with Beckner, but she has rejected him a couple of times now and is clearly uncomfortable. He doesn't seem to be using his institutional power over her to punish her for rejecting him, He's not messing with her career or talking about her behind her back with other members of the crew, but he also won't let it drop. How many times does she have to reject him for him to leave her alone? There is no number high enough. There, there should be, and it's one. And while his concern over the risks of her mission is appropriate, radiation exposure is always a concern and can have a lot of adverse health impacts on a person, Him bringing up specifically his concern over whether it will harm her ability to have babies feels way inappropriate. Yeah, and in a modern employment context, if he were then to take her off of the mission or even just put her in a different section, uh, that would be an adverse employment action motivated by her sex. And that would probably be illegal. Yep. Well, in the United States, it would be illegal. We'll get to that. Fair. If AU had an HR department, they would need to have a talk with him about this. So you said that she's rejected him a couple of times already, but from a certain perspective, and I bet from Beckner's perspective, she hasn't. It's never been an explicit, hey, I'm interested in you, and it's never been an explicit, nope, I'm not interested in that. The lack of an enthusiastic yes is a rejection, period. And... Particularly when there's a power imbalance in the situation, that's something that the person in the position of higher power needs to be cognizant of, because there are a lot of risks to rejecting your boss. He could ruin her life, and probably nobody could do anything about it, um, and nothing bad would happen to him. She has to sort of very carefully calculate how she acts, because she doesn't want to encourage him, but she also really doesn't want to piss him off. As Japanese professor Kazue Muta, who specializes in gender issues, put it, in many cases of sexual harassment, even when a woman shows discomfort with the statements a man is making, he doesn't see the signs. And often, when the man in question is a colleague or a superior or a customer, women take this into consideration and don't openly express displeasure, and the sexual harassment continues without the man realizing. Both in this episode and throughout Zeta, we get a glimpse of how life for women was changing in UC 87 and 1985. We know that Camille's mother's position as a highly educated career woman was somewhat unusual. 
And Camille expresses surprise when he looks around the hangar of the Argama and notices how many women are pilots. Just like in the Universal Century, Japan saw big increases in women's educational attainment and workforce participation at this time. From 1955 to 1981, the percentage of Japanese women who were paid employees, rather than unpaid home workers or self-employed, increased from 17% to 30%. Almost double. Yep. An increase that my source called remarkable, even unprecedented among similar economies. And yet, workplace discrimination and harassment remain commonplace even today. Japan's Equal Employment Opportunity Law passed in May of 1985, but has been criticized for containing no penalties for employers who break the law, for focusing on mediation rather than judicial solutions, and for contributing to the creation of a two-track system, wherein women are usually hired as temporary or part-time workers, making them ineligible for promotion. And even women working full-time are penalized for taking advantage of policies designed to make their family obligations more manageable, such as more time off or greater location stability. There have been revisions since then to make gender, marital status, and pregnancy discrimination illegal, but the first of these revisions wasn't made until 1999. Japan has had and continues to have one of the highest gender wage gaps of the 36 OECD member countries. OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Tons of great economic statistics available through them. The gender wage gap has been decreasing slowly, but in 1975 was more than 40%, and in 1985 was basically the same. By 2017, over two decades later, it had decreased to just under 25%, which is still the third highest in the OECD, after only Estonia and South Korea. Even now, women in Japan hold just 9% of managerial positions, despite making up more than 40% of employees. In 2003, the government set a goal of women holding 30% of leadership positions in the private sector and in government by 2020, a goal which they scaled back considerably to only 15% of management positions in the private sector and 7% in government. Have they gotten close to hitting those goals? Closer? So I guess what you're saying is that if Camille were walking around a Japanese company or government office, he would feel pretty comfortable. Yeah, probably. Women who are pregnant or try to take maternity leave are frequently demoted or otherwise pressured or bullied into quitting their jobs. A 2018 proposal made some progress and yet does not actually ban sexual harassment in the workplace. Japan is the only OECD country without a law prohibiting sexual harassment. A recent survey found that more than 40% of women in the workforce in Japan report being sexually harassed, and more than 30% of all workers report experiencing power harassment and bullying. There's been a surge in harassment of women college students who contact alumni of their school who work at companies they're interested in and then are pressured into a date or attacked when they go for a meeting. Many worry that if they refuse to meet, it will hurt their chances of getting a job. Many job seekers are specifically threatened that they will be bad-mouthed to that company and possibly to other companies if they don't agree to a date or sex In many industries, such as sales or journalism, harassment by clients or sources is considered a job hazard, and women who complain are fired and can have their careers ruined. Among women who are working and have reported a mental health issue, 30% say that workplace harassment is a contributing factor. And while the types of harassment experienced may be different, 
Nearly 16% of working men surveyed also credited workplace harassment with causing or exacerbating their mental health issues. One place where the universal century seems to portray much greater gender equality is in the participation of women in the military. The JSDF, or Japan Self-Defense Force, has accepted women into its ranks since it was formed in 1954, but only as nurses until 1967. It was then expanded to several communications branches, and by 1991 there were women in most service areas except for those requiring direct combat. The first class of women was enrolled in the National Defense Academy in 1992. The ban on women serving on warships was lifted in the late 2000s. The Maritime Self-Defense Force made its first woman captain in 2013, and its first woman to command a warship in 2017. The first woman fighter pilot finished her training in 2018, and as of 2018, the Self-Defense Force is only 6% women. Interestingly, the only posts not open to women now are those aboard submarines, and that one is likely to change soon, and those that involve exposure to dangerous substances or the possibility of inhaling hazardous dust. This is due to the domestic labor standards law, which may have inspired Beckner's what-if-you-can't-have-children comment, because this domestic labor standards law contains specific provision to, quote, protect women from harmful substances that could affect pregnancies. Because I guess it doesn't matter if men get poisoned. Uh. Nina, men are much less useful as baby-making factories. We don't know exactly how many crew there are aboard the Argama, but it certainly seems like more than 6% are women. And many, if not most, of those women are in combat roles. In spite of this, we have very few women in command positions. Just Lila and Emma, so with Lila dead, it's just Emma. And women are often tasked with things like, say, bringing Bright his lunch. Yeah, I maintain that that would go to whichever was the like youngest enlisted officer. It has come up in previous episodes where a woman is the one retrieving the drinks when they're sitting in the cafeteria. You know, it's, sure. it's a pattern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where each individual incident is explainable. But the fact that you never see a male character getting lunch for somebody else. So this all speaks to women's workforce participation and the persistent problem of workplace harassment. But Beckner also brings up another issue. Labor practices in Japan are built around single breadwinner households. Long working hours, the way health insurance is structured, the pension system, the lack of daycare and childcare availability. Discrimination against married and pregnant women forces many women to choose between continuing to work in a hostile environment while having a family and children accepting that they'll likely never be promoted regardless of their work quality and that their partner is not likely to share the burdens of housework, childcare, or elder care, or working like a single breadwinner and accepting that they may not marry or have children. From the 1950s through the 20-teens, the mean age at first marriage has increased steadily for men and women. Since the 2010s, it has leveled off. For women in 1955, the mean age at first marriage was just under 24. Now it's over 31. And in 1985, it was 25. Emma is 24, and if she cared about marriage, is in danger of becoming Christmas cake. (laughs) You have to explain that one. I know. Um, So in Japan, people buy these very elaborate pretty cakes for Christmas. It's part of the celebration. And they can be quite expensive because they're very fancy. 
But on the 26th, suddenly huge sales because you can't sell it anymore. Once it's the day after Christmas, nobody wants it anymore. So the implication is if you're a woman and you're not married by the time you're 26, nobody's going to want you anymore. As the age has climbed up, the saying has changed somewhat. When I was studying in Japan in 2009, I heard New Year's Soba instead in reference to 31 or the 31st. Well, from what you said, the average age of marriage crept up really slowly from 55 to 85. It had increased by a year. And then from 85 until 2015, it shot up, necessitating some changes in language. Women are also having children later in life. Mean age at first birth has gone from 25 in 1955 to 26 in 1985 and 28 in the early 2000s. It's probably quite close to the age at first marriage now. One sort of interesting thing about Japanese culture, very, very few children are born out of wedlock and very few married couples are childless. So being married and having children are effectively synonymous. A growing percentage of the population is remaining unmarried and childless as well. I think we're meant to take Emma's lack of interest in marriage as a sign of her career focus and that women's participation in higher education and the labor force was probably the key driver of the increase in age at first marriage and age at first birth, especially before the bubble burst in the 90s. However, I'd like to point out that since the 1990s, these trends are being driven by many of the same conditions driving the same trends in the United States. And in other developed countries. Instability of employment, depressed wages, and high housing costs. In one source I read, a full 90% of Japanese adults who aren't married say they would like to be, and more than half of them identify lack of money as the major barrier to being married. 40% of Japanese adults think three or more children would be ideal, but identify money as the reason they don't have or don't plan to have that many children. However, other sources identify the cultural expectations of wives and mothers and the impossibility of meeting those expectations, especially while holding a job, as driving many women to opt for the freedom of staying single. It's an unanswered question whether these women might want to marry if the social situation were different, if they made enough money to be the breadwinner, if men were open to being house husbands, if everyone's work hours were fewer so couples could share the load in a more egalitarian way, and so on. But to bring the discussion back to the 1980s, Zeta is not kind to working mothers. Probably the most idyllic mother we've seen so far is Mirai, and Mirai's not still a soldier. Ditto Fra. We don't really know much of anything about Fa's mother, but the way that she's drawn is very sort of like classic middle-aged mom. And then we have Camille's mother, and I'm going to list a bunch of things that a Japanese mom would sort of be expected to do. And I think that will, will help highlight sort of why Camille's mother is such a quote-unquote like failure as a mother in this context. A mom is supposed to do all the errands and the grocery shopping. She's supposed to prepare healthy meals for everyone and pack cute lunches for the kids. She's supposed to entirely manage the children's education. She signs off on homework and cram school documents and filling in logs that are required by daycare. All of the childcare, because there are not, in fact, sufficient childcare spots for all the families that would like them. There's a massive daycare shortage. And all of the cleaning, the laundry, the household management, and all of this pretty much alone. You know, her husband 
is barely home six days of the week and probably sleeps most of the seventh. And so we can see how Hilda, working full-time as an engineer, would not be doing all of these things. She's probably doing some of them still, you know. But these things are not the focus of her attention and interest. <laughs> she probably did make him cute little lunchboxes with, like, a cucumber haro and then a Mark II made out of, like, carrots and rice. I will be interested to see what they do with mothers through Gundam and in Zeta whether they stick with Emma's insistence that she's not thinking of marriage or whether over time she winds up with a romantic subplot. I don't think it's a spoiler to tell you that mothers are going to be an enduring theme in Gundam going forward. But will working mothers always be bad? That's my question. <laughs> that would be a spoiler. You'll just have to keep watching and find out. The turning point in this episode comes when Emma is able to punch through the Titan's defensive formation, reaching and then activating a nuclear pulse engine attached to the side of the colony. The engine, plus the AUG attack, is enough to divert the colony, and it strikes the lunar surface 180 kilometers away from Granada. For reference, that's about the distance from the terrestrial Granada to Sevilla, or the distance from downtown New York City to the extreme tip of Long Island. So pretty close. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> Everyone on both sides of this conflict knows that the nuclear pulse engine is there. Jamaican deploys a portion of his mobile suits to defend it. The AU mobile suit pilots make it their priority target. But no one ever explains what it is or why it's there. It's also not the first time that a nuclear pulse has been mentioned. Back in episode 8, when Quattro met with intelligence agent Kynan, he learned that a nuclear pulse had been detected out in the asteroid belt, and he surmises that it had something to do with what he called Zeon's ghost. So let's dig into nuclear pulses and nuclear pulse engines. Before I start, I would like to thank a listener who asked to be credited as Pizza Rocket, a PhD student whose work touches on nuclear pulse propulsion and was good enough to help out with my research this week. The idea behind the nuclear pulse engine is pretty simple. Explosions send things flying, right? So, if you detonate a big explosion behind your vehicle, it will propel your vehicle in the opposite direction, kind of an external combustion engine. The idea was first proposed in the 1890s using dynamite to create the propulsive explosion, but the yield from dynamite was simply too low to be of much use. But bigger explosions send bigger objects flying farther and faster, right? So, in the 1940s, Stanislaw Ulam proposed using fission-based explosives, by which I mean nuclear bombs, to provide the necessary propulsion. In an early proof-of-concept test, a 20-kiloton bomb was detonated near two steel spheres, each one a meter in diameter. The spheres were eventually recovered, almost entirely intact and several kilometers away from where they had started. Ulam, by the way, was one of the key scientists in the United States Manhattan Project that produced the first nuclear weapons. He is also the Ulam in Teller Ulam, the name given to the method for detonating massively powerful hydrogen bombs. But while Ulam made the first proposal for a nuclear blast-based propulsion system, it was another Los Alamos alumnus who brought the idea as close to reality as it has ever gotten. In 1958, Theodore Taylor who had been a weapons designer at Los Alamos, but who had specialized in small bombs, 
and who had become frustrated by the focus on developing super bombs with the highest possible yield, persuaded the now legendary space exploration theorist Freeman Dyson to join him in designing a spaceship propelled by a system of controlled nuclear explosions, aka a nuclear pulse engine. Dyson is most famous among science fiction fans for his idea of a Dyson Sphere, a massively large network of artificial structures built to enclose an entire star, thus capturing all the energy produced by the star and turning it into an enormous civilization-powering nuclear reactor. Dyson had proposed that doing something like this was so sensible that any sufficiently advanced civilization would eventually do it, and so if you wanted to find sufficiently advanced civilizations, you just had to look for structures like this. Taylor and Dyson were convinced that NASA's focus on chemical rockets for spaceflight was totally wrong-headed, that there was simply no way to get enough yield out of a chemical rocket to justify their continued use. And besides, chemical rockets would be all but useless for any serious missions to destinations further afield than the moon. Plus, that low yield from the chemical fuel meant the actual spacecraft had to be made as light as possible, even if they had to compromise payload size, crew comfort, mission flexibility, and, yeah, safety in the process. The design they came up with looks a bit like a giant bullet, which is resting on top of 30 or so pogo sticks, attached to the top of a 40 meter wide steel plate. Nuclear pulses would detonate behind that steel plate, and the force of the hot plasma generated by the pulse, pushing against the plate, would propel it forward. Thus, it was called a pusher plate. The pogo sticks are really shock absorbers, so that the crew and the cargo inside the spacecraft itself, that's the bullet part, aren't hit by the unmediated forces of a nuclear blast every time a pulse detonates. The plan was to use very small pulse units, about 0.1 kilotons of blast yield per pulse, with one pulse per second on takeoff, and then eventually escalating up to 20 kiloton blasts every 10 seconds as the vehicle accelerated. There was a lot of fear that being exposed to, you know, a nuclear blast every second would swiftly destroy the pusher plate. Ultimately, though, it turned out that with sufficiently small pulses, the contact time between the superheated plasma and the pusher plate was so low, and we're talking about something like a millisecond per pulse, that the damage was negligible because in that time, very little heat could actually transfer between the plasma and the steel. And later proposals would actually incorporate designs for magnetic shielding on the pusher plate that would allow for more powerful pulses and therefore significantly better propulsion without damaging the system in any meaningful kind of way. So you might think that it would be more efficient to detonate the pulse inside a blast chamber so that you can capture the whole of the explosion's energy rather than just what gets caught by the pusher plate. But it turns out that the added weight of the chamber plus the added energy used to cool the chamber actually made these internal pulse engines dramatically less effective. From 1958 until 1965, Taylor and Dyson's project operated under the code name Orion. They were funded variously by the Department of Defense, the U.S. Air Force, and NASA, and the scope of the project changed to accommodate each different funding organization's agenda. For the Air Force, Orion was redesigned to be an orbital weapons platform. For NASA, it was redesigned so that it could be launched into orbit by NASA's existing Saturn V rocket system and then used for interplanetary travel. But despite the enthusiastic support of no less than Werner von Braun, remember him, the Orion project faced one serious hurdle that it could never quite overcome. However much they changed the design, 
it was still built around the idea of ejecting pulse units behind it, detonating them at a predetermined distance and riding the explosions. And that meant that every single pulse unit was itself a self-contained nuclear bomb. The propulsion module for the Orion would have been stuffed full of hundreds, maybe thousands, of nuclear bombs. And if something went wrong, if the launch rocket exploded, what would happen to all that radioactive material? And then, in 1963, the U.S. and Soviet Union agreed to the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which we covered in greater detail back in episode 2.13, Appetite for Mass Destruction. Among other things, the treaty banned atmospheric and exoatmospheric nuclear tests, which were exactly the tests that would have been crucial to developing a real working version of Orion. So that was all she wrote. But Dyson did not move on from the idea of nuclear pulse propulsion, and just a few years later he proposed using tiny fusion reactions rather than fission-based bombs for propulsion. Rather than ejecting and detonating a self-contained bomb, the fusion design instead used small, inert pellets of fusion fuel that would only undergo fusion after being bombarded by laser beams or electron beams. This removed the danger of carrying around a compartment full of bombs and allowed for the use of much more efficient and safer fuel, namely helium-3, just like we discussed back in episode 1.32, The Man from Jupiter. Instead of a pusher plate, this new fusion pulse unit incorporated a powerful magnetic field to channel charged particles into exhaust that could be pushed out the back, while some of the energy from the pulse was converted into electricity to power the ship's systems, including the beams and the magnetic field in the fusion pulse unit. Instead of one pulse per second, because of the greater efficiency and safety of the system, plus the use of that magnetic field, there would be hundreds of micro-explosions, allowing for tremendous speeds. An EU study in the 1970s called Daedalus calculated that such a system could propel a spacecraft at nearly 12% of the speed of light and reach Barnard's star, almost six light-years away, in 50 years. Of course, it would need to mine a significant amount of helium-3 from Jupiter before making the journey. That basic description I just gave for how a fusion pulse unit would work might sound pretty familiar, because it is the same, in a couple important respects, to the way propulsion works in the Universal Century. Minovsky Ionesco reactors use magnetic fields to compress helium-3-based reactor fuel to trigger fusion, and then they expel some of the charged Minovsky particles as exhaust, creating propulsion. Then they recycle the rest for power and to keep the reaction going. The more advanced Minovsky ultra-compact fusion reactors that are used in mobile suits do the same thing, but they use a lattice of Minovsky particles instead of a magnetic field. But still, fundamentally the same thing. But these Minovsky fusion reactors were all developed relatively late in the universal century. Different sources give different dates, but the earliest date I've seen for completion of a working Minovsky Ionesco reactor is UC-71, eight years before the One Year War and the start of First Gundam. The first space colony, however, was completed in UC-1. It's the reason they changed the calendar. Colony building was at its peak in the first half of the universal century, and by UC-50, more than 80% of the human population lived in space. So maneuvering those massive colonies into position, not to mention moving resource asteroids like Luna 2 and Abawaku, had to be done with powerful and efficient engines based on pre-Minovsky technology. And the engines they picked for that were nuclear pulse engines. You can actually look at the scene in the episode when the pulse engine goes off and see from the shape of the blast that there has been an explosion some distance from the engine, which is pushing against the colony. 
In fact, if you look closely, I think you can even see where some of the stray plasma from the explosion is getting captured by a magnetic field, making this design the descendant of the ones proposed by Freeman Dyson and incorporated into the Project Daedalus designs of the 1970s. Pulse engines that would use laser beams to bombard fuel pellets to create a series of tiny fusion explosions, and magnetic fields to direct those explosions into thrust. Ultimately, the nuclear pulse engine is used to divert the colony away from Granada, but we can assume that they were also used to put the colony on this course and propel it toward Granada in the first place. In that way, I think they're emblematic of the great tragedy of the universal century in the Zeta era. Here we have these engines that were instrumental in the great colony-building project that could be used to propel humanity beyond the Earth's sphere and into the stars. Engines that were built from the same technology and by many of the same people responsible for the most destructive weapons known to humanity, but turned instead to peaceful purposes. In those heady early days of the universal century, when humanity first left the earthly cradle, it must have seemed like the prophecy of Isaiah had come true and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, nor study war again. But the one-year war brought that era to an end. The colonies, propelled by nuclear pulse engines, were made into weapons as devastating as any nuclear bomb. Swords made from plowshares. The way that Katz is kneeling on the floor at the end of the episode is very specific. In Japanese, it's called seiza. It is a formal way of sitting on the floor with the knees, shins, and tops of the feet flat against the floor, the lower leg directly under the thigh, and your butt sitting on your heels or ankles. If this sounds uncomfortable, that's because for people who aren't used to it, it is! Your feet and legs will very quickly get pins and needles and fall asleep. I wish I could just read a section whole out of the Wikipedia page because I love how it's written, but to boil it down, Seiza as the respectful and proper way to sit is a relatively modern custom in Japanese history. Seiza didn't become common until tatami flooring became common. Kneeling on tatami is less uncomfortable than kneeling on a dirt or wood floor and didn't become part of daily life rather than just ceremonial occasions until the late 18th century. Seiza is especially common in the practice of certain martial arts and traditional arts such as dance, tea ceremony, shogi, uh, sometimes calligraphy. Uh, seiza is also a relatively common punishment for children and students. In 2015, a teacher made the news for making 96 students who were late to a field trip kneel in the plaza outside the Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building. He kept them there for 20 minutes. On cobblestones? Uh, tile? Like stone tile? Ow. Yep. And publicly humiliating, which yeah. is half the point, I'm sure. Seiza as punishment is usually on a hard surface like concrete or linoleum and can involve being forced to sit in an unheated room. While it is physical and that it's meant to cause physical discomfort, it also forces the person being punished into a position of respectfulness uh, and many people do not consider it the same as corporal punishment and find it more acceptable even as corporal punishment declines. Uh, so Katz's punishment is meant to be both physically uncomfortable and to force him into a respectful posture, since so much of his mistake comes out of a lack of respect for the rules and regulations of the ship, not to mention the advice and admonishments of his superiors, slash elders, slash senpai. 
Uh, in a weird coincidence, the Japan Times ran an article this morning about Seiza being included in a list of unacceptable punishments under a new law to be enacted in April, alongside beatings, spankings, and other punishments that inflict bodily pain, regardless of whether the parent considers it necessary for discipline. The law is being enacted in response to recent deaths of several children due to physical abuse that the parents described as discipline. It's a weird one because it is an essential part of the practice of a bunch of different arts. But in those contexts, you train at it, you practice it until it becomes less uncomfortable. And even if it is uncomfortable, you sort of like willingly submit to that discomfort as part of your training. It's not the same as being punished thinking about exercise and how many exercises <laughs> really hurt, but you do them because you like want to get fit or get strong or whatever. Well, and in sports and martial arts, it's common to punish somebody by forcing them to do an exercise over and over and over again for an extended period of time or in terrible conditions. It's a thing that as a coach, you're allowed to make your trainee do, but then taken to the level where it becomes abuse. Yeah, I found it very ironic that the article in question was accompanied by a picture of a bunch of people sitting in Seiza because of a like traditional context. It was a bunch of students watching a shogi match and the two shogi players are both sitting in Seiza, and most of the children in the audience are as well. But that is obviously very different from someone wanting to inflict physical pain on a child as punishment. Emma retreats to the White Base Canteen after awkwardly giving Beckner the brush off, and there she encounters a device sitting on her table that lights up, makes noise, and dispenses a fortune on a rolled-up piece of paper when Emma presses a lever. In a funny coincidence, the machine predicts that she will soon be the recipient of a marriage proposal, which, it is evident from her reaction, would be very much unwelcome. Fortune-telling machines have been popular carnival amusements since at least the late 1800s, and usually they take the form of a large cabinet with some kind of complex animatronic automaton designed to look like a mystic seer, usually corresponding to one of the classic casually racist stereotypes. Beautiful Roma woman, turban-wearing swami, wise black grandmother, Native American medicine man, and so on. You put your money in the slot, pull the lever, and the automaton comes to life. Speakers play some mystic phrases in the automaton's voice. You ask the machine your question, the automaton puts on a little show, and then dispenses a randomly selected bit of paper with your fortune written on it. The radish's fortune-telling machine is not so complex as all of that, but the basic elements are all there. Press the lever, brief light and sound show, and then you get your randomly selected fortune. And back in the 1950s, had you gone into an American diner, chances are pretty good that you would have seen similar devices sitting on the tables or counters there. Fortune-telling machines came out of the carnivals, and there was a vogue for rudimentary versions that doubled as napkin dispensers in diners. According to one source, fortune-telling machines were ubiquitous in diners of the era. Like the automats that Nina talked about back in episode 2.23, they have mostly disappeared, but I distinctly remember encountering one or two such relics in my childhood. These devices are closer to the one Emma uses. It's a box, a lever, a slot for your coin to go in, and another slot for the rolled-up bit of paper with your fortune on it to come out. The most famous of these was the Ask Swami fortune teller and napkin dispenser, which invited those seeking after forbidden knowledge of the future to ask any question that could be answered yes or no, 
(laughs) (laughs) That's right. It was basically a coin flip, except at the end, you don't get your coin back. Fiendish. Funny you should say that. Because one such fortune teller based loosely on the Ask Swami, but redecorated to look like the devil, even appeared in the 1960 Twilight Zone episode Nick of Time, which featured a young William Shatner as a newlywed entranced by the possibilities of a fortune-telling machine that could actually tell the future. Still, the thing about these American fortune-telling machines is that they always have to personify the dispenser of fortunes. Even though the Ask Swami was just a regular metal box with napkins stuffed into the sides, There had to be a cartoon of the titular Swami on the front to confer legitimacy on the randomly dispensed yeses and noes. But in Japan, there's a similar tradition of fortune-telling by lot called omikuji that is said to date back to the 900s CE and the legendary Buddhist priest and mystic Ryogen, abbot of the Enryakuji temple. The way it works, classically, is as follows. Go to a temple where they do omikuji fortunes. After making an appropriate offering, you take a box or a canister filled with long, thin sticks in both hands and you shake it. Then you take a single stick out and read the number written on the end of it. That number will correspond to a particular drawer containing slips of paper with omikuji fortunes written on them. Select the one that matches your stick number and read it. The omikuji paper can contain various things, the number, an explanation, some classic poetry to make you feel better about whatever fortune you got, etc. But the core of the omikuji is your fortune, which is ranked on a 12-point scale from Great Blessing, Daikichi, all the way down to Great Curse, Daikyo. And then it specifies what aspect of your life that fortune prediction is actually about. This can be anything from whether you'll find a lost article, or make money in the market, to whether you'll get sick and die. If you get a good fortune, keep it. If you get a bad fortune, fold it up and leave it hanging up somewhere in the temple, and you'll be leaving your misfortune behind, too. Interestingly, one of the things you can get a fortune about is whether or not you'll be proposed to. And of course, whether that proposal will be a great blessing or a great curse. But thanks to Japan's long-standing love affair with vending machines, as Nina also covered back in episode 2.23, it is also possible to forego the full temple omikuji experience and get your randomly selected fortune dispensed from a vending machine instead. These machines have been around since at least the 1920s, and the typical example looks a lot like Emma's. It's a simple box, painted vermilion red due to that color's religious associations, with a lever and the requisite slots for coins to go in and fortunes to come out. So that's pretty close, but it's still not quite right, because... These omikuji vending machines tend to be way bigger than Emma's, and they don't do the same light and sound show. But while I was poking around looking at omikuji vending machines, I found another fortune-dispensing device that looks a lot more like Emma's. It's a desktop machine, looks a bit like a large egg, except that the top of it is a clear glass or plastic, and inside there is a roulette wheel. Put your coin in, pull the wheel, roulette happens, and a fortune pops out. Called a Takujo Kogata Jirohanbaiki, or small desktop vending machine, these were introduced in 1983, two years before Zeta Gundam, and other versions without the roulette wheel had been around since at least the 70s. 
They achieved early success by tapping into two simultaneous crazes sweeping through Japanese culture in the late 70s and early 80s. A coffee shop boom and a horoscope boom. In the years just before Zeta's debut, the manufacturers of these roulette fortune dispensers were producing 200,000 units every year, and many of them were ending up on tables in the hippest new coffee shops. Exactly the sorts of places, say, that a bunch of young animators and writers working for Sunrise might have gone to have a coffee and think about what to put in the next episode. Next time on episode 2.27, There Was a Ship. We cover Molesuit Zeta Gundam episode 26 and absolutely unambiguous sexual harassment. Consider this a content warning. Mm. It's hard to flirt when you have an audience. How could we forget you? You're a constant annoyance. Great Zeon's ghost. Just like hot wiring a car. A clever ploy. The Beckner leadership method. No leg sleeves either. Emma engages in sunk cost fallacy. But that's the worst of the fallacies. And Abawaku 2 Titanic Boogaloo. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Haro wasn't trying to help Fa. Haro just hates the moon and wants to see it punished on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Nick H. Thank you, Nick. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Now I am the one who sounds good. I wasn't recording. I wasn't recording on your mic. I know all about you, sir. Back in the studio. Back in the studio. I had my cup of lemon tea earlier, but then instead of getting another cup of lemon tea, I merely squeezed half of a lemon into my mug and then poured hot water on it. Nice. It's um. It's lemony. It's like uh, it's like eating a warhead. <laughs> <laughs>
Remember those? <laughs> yep. Although, do you mean lemon heads? Because I think warheads mm-hmm. were. Cin- I thought warheads were cinnamon. I felt. I thought warheads were just like super duper sour. I might be thinking of atomic fireballs. Or... Yeah, those were cinnamon. Yeah. Basically, there's a lot of those candy. Are just like that's giant red hots. Designed to be unpleasant. <laughs> and kids still love it. Mm-hmm. I loved red hots. Why? They're just so bad in every way. I like cinnamon. I like cinnamon things too, but not. Not those, I guess. Hmm. Hmm. The day the whatever happened. Mm-hmm. The day of the tentacle, the day of the <laughs> It's a video game. It, it's not what it sounds like, I promise. Commodore 4 is survived by other members of the 4 family, Murasame 4 and Bajina Quattro. I wonder what the Gundam World version of KFC would be. Granada Fried Ostrich. You're a new type, aren't you? Why, yes, I am. Backtracking. Cut all of this. (laughs) Tom, avoid playing with your noisy glasses. Challenge 2019. Remove the temptation. I took them off. Does that work? I was I was concerned that one wasn't gonna work. Cutting, cutting. You know it's true. <laughs> Just likes dangerous women, but really, who doesn't? Bravo. Ugh. Everybody slapping Camille around Mm. is definitely power abuse. Space magic. (laughs) We captured a star. It's our energy source. Gotta catch them all. The pogo sticks are really shock absorbers. Absorbers. That was a really good ending. Thank you. That's the worst of the fallacies. Quattro's Log, August 17th, UC 87. Dear Garma,